Why some say the moon? Why choose this as our goal? And they may well ask, why climb the highest mountain? Why 35 years ago fly the Atlantic? Why does Rice play Texas? We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Because that goal will serve to organize and measure the best of our energies and skills. Because that challenge is one that we're willing to accept, one we are unwilling to postpone, and one we intend to win. That was John F. Kennedy at Rice University in Texas on September 12, 1961, delivering one of the most memorable speeches of his presidency. It was a speech that inspired the country to embark on one of the great adventures of the 20th century, setting the goal of landing a man on the moon before the end of the decade. It was a huge and costly undertaking that, as historian Doug Brinkley reminds us in his new book, American Moonshot, John F. Kennedy and the Great Space Race, was a risky gambit for which success was by no means guaranteed. It was conceived during the height of the Cold War, during a space race in which the United States had suffered humiliating setbacks. It was the Soviet Union that had launched the first satellite into space, Sputnik, in 1958. And it was the Soviets who had sent the first human into space, Yuri Gagarin, in April 1961, just a few months after Kennedy had taken office. It was a race, Kennedy declared that steamy hot day at Rice, that America would win. And it did 50 years ago this month, July 20, 1969, when Apollo astronaut Neil Armstrong set foot on the moon, declaring that's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. We'll look back on the events that led to the moonshot, including the crucial role played by a controversial Nazi rocket scientist on this episode of Buried Treasure. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true. But the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. So we're going to do something a little different on this episode for the 4th of July. Instead of talking about the news and Russia and Trump, look back at the events of the 1950s and 60s that uh, led to that moon landing 50 years ago, something everybody who was alive then now remembers. I certainly do. I was a kid at camp. You probably were in diapers at the time. Uh, but, um, I do. I remember my parents putting me before our, I think, black and white television um, when white I was, TV. I think I was, think I was yeah. five years old or so and pretty vivid memory of that actually. Fourth of July, it is a, in so many ways, a kind of quintessentially American story in how all of this happened. And yet the paradox that in many ways 
we piggybacked on Nazi Germany, which we're going to get into to make this all happen. So that, fascinating kind of moral ambiguities. Absolutely. To this story. I want to talk. We'll be talking about that with Doug Brinkley because the Werner von Braun and the role he played is sort of morally troubling when you learn exactly what von Braun did during World War II to help Adolf Hitler kill a lot of people. Look, I I don't want to mar this uh, lofty subject with cheap (laughs) political commentary, but I do keep thinking since uh, this is our special 4th of July episode that our current president, Donald Trump, found his own way to celebrate Independence Day. And it's very different from the kind of Kennedy ethos of asking us to uh, come together and to be bold and to uh, be imaginative and do something like the moonshot. He's going to be holding a big Trump MAGA parade on the mall. And um, With there's, tanks. there's talk about tanks. We'll see if, if that happens. That seems fairly backward looking to me as opposed to looking into the future, peering into space the way that Kennedy did. But, you know. I thought we were going to try to avoid talking about Trump during this episode. So let's, let's a... curtail that discussion <laughs> and get right to uh, Doug Brinkley. We now have with us the distinguished historian and good friend of the podcast, Doug Brinkley, author of American Moonshot, John F. Kennedy and the Great Space Race. Welcome back to Skullduggery, Doug. Hey, thanks for having me on, Michael. And listen, congrats on the book. It's such a great read. It brings back so many memories for those of us who lived uh, as uh, young people through that moment in history. So I just want to sort of start out by saying, you know, the moon program and the moon landings galvanized the country at the time. From the vast, you know, sweep of historical perspective, here we are 50 years later, what is the sort of historical significance of this event? You know, since the beginning of humankind, uh, we've all looked at the moon uh, as a species, and it seemed out of reach. Could it ever be touched? And suddenly there became technology in the 20th century that made it possible. The big innovation was uh, Wilbur and Orville Wright, uh, the Wright brothers at Kitty Hawk in 1903. But during the World War I years, uh, the Woodrow Wilson administration started putting federal money into military aviation and things like wind tunnels and anti-icing for airplanes out of Hampton, Virginia. We call it the Langley Research Center. And that started moving things along, and it was sort of the birth of the aerospace industry. And it came to full fruition after World War II once radar was invented, and we started getting more sophisticated types of computers. And by the late 1950s, uh, the transistor, the computer chip, got invented by Jack Kirby out of Texas Instruments, and NASA starts applying it to space applied science. And the idea of John F. Kennedy is we're racing with the Soviet Union in the sense that they, in 1957, put a Sputnik satellite up. We make a counterstatement with an Explorer satellite. They put Yuri Gagarin, a cosmonaut, into space. We put Alan Shepard. But Kennedy didn't want counterstatements all the time, and his word he used over and over again was leapfrog. We've got to leapfrog the Soviets. 
And the decision was made to have NASA, which had been created in 1958, to start engineering the Apollo program with our eyes of landing on the moon by the end of the decade, beating the Soviets and doing it in the name of peace for all mankind and uh, touting it as one of the great human achievements uh, since the beginning of recorded time. So, Doug, this isn't just a uh, a book about the moonshot. It is also a biography of John F. Kennedy seen through the lens of that historic achievement. And in some ways, it, it sort of proves the great man theory of, of history. So tell us a little bit about what it was, what qualities and characteristics that John F. Kennedy had that made this possible and on a faster deadline than a lot of people thought it could happen on. Well, he was born in 1917 in Brookline, Massachusetts, and that means he's a child of the age of flight, uh, the first generation ever that just grew up with air transportation. But his father, Joseph Kennedy, was what today we call him a tiger dad. He just pushed his kids to achieve. And a big thing in the Kennedy household is second place is no good, no silver medallion. You've got to win. And people have an idea of John F. Kennedy being handsome or debonair, witty, but he was a ruthless political animal. He never lost a single election in his life. He won Congress in, in 48, again in 1950. Then he runs for the U.S. Senate in 1952 and wins. He runs for the Senate in 58 and wins. And he runs for president in 1960 and wins. He never lost an election. So the idea that the United States was going to be losing in science education, technology, and space exploration of the Soviet Union just wasn't in his disposition. And since he built his political fortunes in the late 50s on slamming Eisenhower, the president who did nothing, who allowed the Soviets to be beating us in space, once he became president, he felt that he had to take a big and bold lead. When he went famously on May 25, 1961, to a joint session of Congress and said, we're putting a man on the moon by the end of the decade and bringing him back alive, his own national security advisor, McGeorge Bundy, pigeonholed him. And he said, Mr. President, that is a grandstanding ploy you made. We have no technology to go to the moon. And Kennedy said, Mac, you've got to have moxie if you're going to run for president in your 40s. And many good books, like Nigel Hamilton, a historian, wrote a book called Reckless Youth about John F. Kennedy. He was apt to do reckless, adventurous things. Uh, and Eisenhower called the Kennedy's Apollo program a stunt. Um, it had critics, but John F. Kennedy thought it would be good for the American spirit, and in the end it would help uh, create tech corridors, particularly in the so uh, Gulf South and Deep South. You know, that is interesting. You mentioned that um, Eisenhower, who was then former president, criticized the moon program. But it wasn't just him. There was conservative Republicans. Barry Goldwater was a critic of Kennedy's program to land a man on the moon. He said that, uh, as you point out, that the Kennedy administration was gambling with national survival because it was embarked on a peaceful program of space exploration instead of using space for military purposes. Well, that's exactly right. Barry Goldwater wanted what Donald Trump today is calling Space Force, except Goldwater wanted all that funding just to go to the Air Force, make it kind of the Air 
Force and Space Force together. So he wanted a militarization of space. Kennedy was pushing for the peaceful exploration of space in a friendly but frenetic contest with the Soviet Union. On the left, people like Senator Walter Mondale of Minnesota, J. William Fulbright of Arkansas, uh, and many NAACP leaders, people like ranging from Ralph Abernathy at SCLC, uh, Whitney Young, they thought the money should be spent on urban poverty programs, the kind of war on poverty that we know LBJ took up with the Great Society. Kennedy said no to the anti-poverty program as his special new frontier calling card and instead decided that technology held all the answers of tomorrow. It was part of, Michael, the Time. Uh, Time magazine picked scientists as its persons of the year of 1960. And the, you know, Seattle World's Fair of 1962, when they built the Space Needle, was all about space age architecture and themes of tomorrow. So Kennedy was writing the zeitgeist of the time and recognizing with Mercury 7 astronauts that people were craving, hungering for space heroes. And we could watch these launches in our living rooms. It was riveting TV because there's countdown and you watch the rocket take off and then they disappear. And then you hear astronauts talking from space and then you have the drama of the splashdown. Apollo 11 which will be the 50th anniversary right now this month. Uh, it was eight days, Apollo 11. It's not just Neil Armstrong putting a foot imprint on the lunar surface. It's eight-day television extravaganza, and Kennedy intuited that this was good because he, he liked space. He called them the Kennedy Space Corps. But, you know, Jack Kennedy created the SEALs. He created the Green Beret. You know, he liked special ops. And he saw these space cadets as special ops. Well, Doug, he, he did not use this to militarize space, but he certainly uh, seemed to have seen this endeavor as essential to our national security in the sense that, and I think this was, you make a very convincing case, this was an important part of his insight, which is that this would be an extension of our Cold War rivalry with the Soviets and our ability to, to beat them. That's exactly right and well said. And, um, you know, it was clever because here we are actually building ICBMs on intermediate range missiles, but we're sugarcoating it with, you know, we're going to space and space exploration and children's toys for space and, you know, Astro hamburgers and space galaxy movie theaters. And it worked. So in other words, Kennedy is really embracing the industrial military complex that Eisenhower warned about because Kennedy realizes that he, he becomes a partner with aerospace Fortune 500 companies and big contractors and subcontractors. The real winners of going to the moon financially are companies like North American Aviation, Boeing, McDonnell Douglas, Grumman, uh, IBM. And you, any Doug, you also companies. make the point that that was also crucial to getting funding for the program, overcoming the resistance of critics because of all those big contractors and the essential pork barrel politics that was behind it. Cape Canaveral in Florida, Huntsville in Alabama, you know, the Space Center in Houston, you know, getting the support of the congressmen and senators from those states helped overcome the resistance of the critics like Goldwater and William Fulbright. 
Exactly. And it was a strategy for the Southern Zone. You know, we forget 1960 was only 15 years after the end of World War II. And Jack Kennedy did not like Harry Truman. He had nothing to do with Truman. And he really despised Eisenhower. And his family didn't get along with FDR. Kennedy is kind of his own guy. But what he realizes is he doesn't want a new deal. What he does like about FDR are some of the infrastructure job programs, particularly the Tennessee Valley Authority in the south, the building of things like the Grand Coulee Dam and bridges, because it spread money around the country. Eisenhower did the interstate highway system and the St. Lawrence Seaway. So Jack Kennedy's wondering, what should I do? What's going to be my big personal project? And he chose space. His brother, incidentally, I write in the book, Joe Kennedy Jr., was killed in World War II on an aviation mission aimed at turning a plane into a drone and blowing up some of Werner von Braun's uh, vengeance weapons, V-1s, 2s, and 3s. And so Kennedy kind of thought his brother had died trying to take out Nazi missile bases. He started realizing that television and missile technology were going to be a big thing in the second half of the 20th century, and indeed they were, and they are today in the 21st century. You know, you mentioned Werner von Braun, and I really want to dig into that a bit, because I, frankly, I found that the most mind-blowing part of the book, the crucial role that this Nazi rocket scientist played in developing America's space program. And you go into Werner von Braun's background, and we're going to play, before we have the discussion, I think we're going to play that Tom, the famous Tom Lehrer song, which is what people do remember about Werner von Braun. Gather round while I sing you of Werner von Braun, a man whose allegiance is ruled by expedience. Call him a Nazi, he won't even frown. Nazi schmazi, says Werner von Braun. Don't say that he's hypocritical. Say rather that he's apolitical. Once the rockets are up, who cares where they come down? <laughs> That's not my department, says Werner von Braun. Some have harsh words for this man of renown, but some think our attitude should be one of gratitude, like the widows and cripples in old London town who owe their large pensions to Werner von Braun. You too may be a big hero once you've learned to count backwards to zero. In German or English, I know how to count down. And I'm learning Chinese, says Werner von Braun. So let's talk about von Braun a bit and his role in World War II, because it wasn't just that he was devising and engineering the V-2 rockets that were raining death and destruction on the United Kingdom and uh, elsewhere in Europe, but these rockets 
were being built by slave labor, Nazi slave labor from concentration camps in which something like 10,000 people died building the rockets for Werner von Braun. Exactly. And it's a big part of my book. Uh, Adolf Hitler really had only one chance of winning World War II. And it's that is von Braun's rockets could get so perfective to carry warheads on them and be like ICBMs, they could obliterate London and Antwerp and other cities. And Hitler went about trying to do that and almost pulled it off. The problem was we being the ally, the Royal Air Force of Great Britain and the U.S. Army Air Corps tried to constantly find these sites where they were being constructed and take them out. So we harassed them enough. But nevertheless, um, von Braun, by late 1944, was firing his V-2s into London and art 210 miles. Von Braun's the first person in world history to ever put a rocket into outer space. He did it in the crucible of World War II. He was able to send a projectile above the 62-mile mark and suddenly leave the grip of Earth's gravity. So he becomes the most wanted person for the United States. We're desperate to get him. And he surrenders to America, and in a deal known as Operation Paperclip, we bring Warner von Braun and 137 of the top Nazi rocket scientists, and we call them prisoners of peace, and move them to Fort Bliss in El Paso, Texas. And they start trying to reconstruct their missiles here for the United States Army. And von Braun will work for the U.S. Army and NASA basically for the rest of his life. And it's von Braun who built the Jupiter missiles uh, that are so famous in Cold War history. And then he built the Saturn rockets. And it's a Saturn V of Werner von Braun that took us to the moon. But here's the thing, Doug. I mean, if he had not been a brilliant rocket scientist, he could have been tried for war crimes. I mean, using slave labor in which thousands of people died to build his rockets for Adolf Hitler. Should have been charged for it. The reason he wasn't is a devil's deal the United States made. Von Braun was knew if he got captured by the British Army, they would try him for war crimes. He did not want to work as a prisoner under Joseph Stalin's post-war missile program. So his only real chance was to cut an elaborate deal with the United States. And what he did right was he gathered all of the top rocket scientists, then took all of, he was an SS officer. He then was able to order trains with all of the blueprints, war materials of his rocket program and hide them in a cave and blow up the cave and then disappear to the Bavarian Alps and send his younger brother Magnus on a bicycle to look for the U.S. Army to surrender. Eventually went up the chain of command and it was up to Truman to decide what to do with Von Braun. And they decided he has such scientific know-how that we will overlook, we will we will basically whitewash his World War II record in order to have him work for the U.S. government. And, and Von Braun comes and he doesn't like talking about or will talk about World War II. His first speech is to the El Paso Rotary Club where he talks about going to the moon and Mars. And then Walt Disney discovers him and puts him on his television show throughout the 50s as his space buddy. And um, Von Braun becomes a household name, and he's able to use his fame to convince people to fund his 
rockets for military purposes, but also von Braun always had his eyes on Moon and Mars. And Kennedy was enamored with von Braun when he flies down and takes the tour of Cape Canaveral and Huntsville. There's von Braun leading him around. Kennedy admired von Braun. Did Was there ever any sense that he ever, JFK did, grappled with the sort of moral ambiguity at best? of using this Nazi war criminal as his uh, guide to make the space program work. Well, you know, Kennedy met von Braun in 1953 when he he was a judge with von Braun for, again, Time Magazine's Person of the Year. Kennedy and von Braun went out all over Manhattan together, dined. They got along famously. Kennedy held no animosity towards him. Jack Kennedy viewed it as the older, that they were both 20th century guys that had to serve in World War II, that the 19th century men were Churchill, Adenauer, de Gaulle, Stalin, people born in the 19th century. They saw themselves as just following orders. And to be fair to Kennedy on this point, by 1953, I mean, we're trying to build up West Germany as our closest ally and Japan as our best friend when just so few years earlier um, they were our enemy. So Kennedy, Von Braun liked that about Jack Kennedy. He could tell that there wasn't a chip on his shoulder. He didn't treat him as if he were a Nazi. And and Eisenhower didn't like Von Braun. And so Ike greenlights the Vanguard rocket program that was our U.S. Navy rockets. Well, those are the rockets you see collapsing in video for film footage at Cape Canaveral. You don't see Von Braun rockets collapse because he was that good of rocket engineer. And so when Kennedy's in a in the bind in 1961, he he's looking for that leapfrog, and Von Braun's telling him, I can do it. I don't know how, but I'll get us to the moon. I can do it. And they become close. And after Kennedy's death, Von Braun, when he would test Saturn's, would put the initials JFK on his rockets. And in my book, I have a correspondence between Von Braun and Jackie Kennedy, uh, because Jackie wants to keep her slain husband's dream of a moonshot alive, and that's music to Von Braun's ears. So they became allies on convincing LBJ to don't defund going to the moon. Doug, just to clarify one point, Von Braun did not have to become an SS officer, right? I mean, some of his colleagues stayed out of the party, did not rise in Nazi leadership. He made a a choice to do that. Isn't that right? Absolutely. Most of the top, not most, but a number of the really great German rocketeers, and they had a fetish for rockets in Germany. They fled Hitler. Von Braun was an opportunist and said, look, I'm going to get German army funding, and my project is the top one. I will do it, because my, his goal ultimately was, to, was a space traveler. And so if he could get through, and he was, a, he was look, a Nazi, so he, he's not a sustainable hero, uh, and I'm very hard on him in my book, where you can't ignore him as if you are today doing his innovations on jet propulsion and on um, liquid fuel rockets. It's still like 101 for rocket scientists. Von Braun is still taught uh, anybody wanting to get into the rocket business because he was like Albert Einstein of rockets. He was is the one who figured out all of our uh, major 
space innovations. And, um, you know, he's a deeply flawed and complicated global history with blood on his hands. How risky was the moon program when Kennedy laid out the goal of setting a man on the moon by the end of the decade? Extremely risky. You know, today we don't realize uh, we're, we're more cautious about things. This was still in the late uh, 50s, early 60s, that World War II, hurry up, we can do it. Uh, so people died. I mean, I write a, in my book about a man, Victor Prather, who drowns just trying to test one of those astronaut suits in the sea. Uh, we had pilots dying left and right at Edwards Air Force Base uh, associated with the space program. Apollo 1 blew up on, in 1967 on the launch pad at Cape Canaveral in a test exercise, and we lost astronauts Ed White, Roger Chafee, and Gus Grissom. So two things to know about NASA and space. First off, they would say, no bucks, no buck Rogers. Space exploration is very expensive. And number two, wanting to be an astronaut is deeply dangerous business. I did the official interview of Neil Armstrong for NASA, and uh, Armstrong told me that he thought going to the moon they had a 50-50 chance of success. He Not death, wow. but 50-50 cents a chance of success. And Nixon had William Sapphire, his speechwriter, write a letter of condolence that Nixon was prepared to deliver about what went wrong with Apollo 11. So just because it all worked doesn't mean it was a surefire thing. But, the you know, it took hundreds of thousands of engineers, computer specialists, technicians. They came out of MIT and Caltech and Rice. They came out of Fortune 500 companies. They came out of the Air Force and Navy, Army, Marines. They all pulled together to do a moonshot. And the very word now stands for American largesse, can-doism, something big short of war that pulls the country together. Well, Doug, on a, on a slightly lighter note, uh, since you mentioned, again, the word moonshot, Isakoff and I were both fascinated by the <laughs> the, uh, the origin of that word and how it relates to America's national pastime. One of the, so, one of the many great nuggets in this book. Tell the story. So tell that story, because I think everyone uh, Where will... the phrase comes from. <laughs> Well, it comes out of Major League Baseball. In the late 1950s, there was a, a home run hitter named Wally Moon for the Los Angeles Dodgers. And in the fall of classics of getting in the World Series, he got hot, kind of like Reggie Jackson later would do with the Yankees. And he'd hit these towering home runs. And Vince Scully, a baseball announcer for the Dodgers, then would say, there it goes, far back left, up, it's gone, a moonshot over the you know, right field fence. <laughs> and the term moonshot started tracking, and then NASA picks up on it. So if you read like old clippings of the old Houston Press newspaper, they're calling it the Moonshot Command Post in Houston, Texas. And incidentally, Houston's the big beneficiary of going to the moon. It's now our nation's fourth largest city. The word Houston is said in outer space all the time. And, you know, the Astros baseball team and the NBA Rockets, and uh, it's kind of become a space city, USA. And it gave Houston something besides oil and gas to make as a major uh, economic 
tour de force for the community. Like I said, that's, that's one of so many great nuggets in this book. Another one which I really relished reading about was, of course, you know, when the moonshot is actually happening, Apollo 11, there is a suggestion that the space capsule by a White House advisor named Stephen Bull, who writes to H.R. Haldeman, maybe it would be good politics to name the space capsule after John F. Kennedy. And this quickly gets shot down by John Ehrlichman, who writes, the next step will be renaming the moon after Kennedy himself because NBC thinks it would be a good idea. Exactly. I mean, the Nixon's advisors, Haldeman and Ehrlichman, uh, were really, it was Bill Moyers and Daniel Patrick Moynihan that were really developing a program through public relations to name the rocket John F. Kennedy. And Nixon's advisors said, no way. Uh, you, if you play, if you capitulate to liberals and name the rocket the JFK, they'll say you didn't do enough. You should rename the moon after Kennedy. And Nixon just does not mention John F. Kennedy's name the entire summer of 1969. But where they didn't forget Kennedy was at NASA, because at Mission Control, as soon as the Hornet retrieved in the South Pacific, Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, and Michael Collins, they flashed on the Mission Control Board Kennedy's moon pledge of May 25th, 1961, and then under it they put Task Accomplished, July 1969. And at that very moment, an unknown American citizen went to Arlington Cemetery in Virginia and put a bouquet of flowers on Kennedy's grave and left a note that said, Mr. President, the eagle has landed. Uh, I thought that was a lovely uh, grace note in the epilogue of your book. I wanted to go back to something you touched on briefly at the outset of this interview, which is the economic and technological benefits to this moonshot. Because in effect, the argument was that the moonshot will scale. And I wonder if you could walk us through some of the real benefits. And some of them, I think, are more mythical than real. So talk us through that a little bit. Well, it's a big point. And why the end, I think the moonshot has to be deemed a historical success. I mean, it's an engineering feat. Uh, We did it. So nobody can uh, refute that. But the question is always, did we get enough for our $25 billion, which would be about $180 billion today? But the spinoff technology of going to the moon was just staggering. I mean, things on uh, space medicine that were developed like CAT scan and MRI machines, kidney dialysis machines, uh, heart defibrillators, foam cushion that's used in NFL football for helmets to prevent concussions, to the fire suits that we have today, more fire resistance for our our firemen. You get things like spinoffs of uh, GPS, global positioning, anti-icing. I could go on and on. It's a whole, you know, I grapple with it in the book, but it's a massive amount of biomedical and everyday products we use emerged from NASA in the 1960s, and it, it's really staggering. Um, what about how much? What about Tang, which I grew up on as a kid? <laughs> well, Tang and Velcro are kind of myths. 
Okay. What happened? Which with is what I always thought. I thought Velcro was the major innovation we got from the space program, and it was a fall. It was false. It was a lie. I was told it was a, a lie, lie as a kid. Yeah, it was a lie. Velcro was developed by a guy in Switzerland in World War II who would hike in the Alps, and his collie dog would get burrs in its fur. And so he devised this method to take the burrs out of the dog's fur and then patent it, and, and, and that's the birth of Velcro. What is true is NASA adopts that, and it kind of becomes famous with it. And Tang, uh, uh, that Neil Armstrong despised Tang. The astronauts thought it tasted terrible. Uh, but they made a commercial campaign using it. So many people today from the, the advertising jingles and the like uh, associate Tang with astronauts. Uh, but it's, you know, I, guys, I just spoke at the Culinary Institute of America where the head of it did a space meal. He, he did for me with gourmet chefs. They made exquisite meals out of space food, you know, food in tubes and things, uh, and it was good. And it was a lesson in what kind of what astronauts eat in space. Today, our International Space Station, they have one night Italian dinners, next sushi, the next uh, Turkish food. It's uh, they really feed them much better than they did out of that Mercury, Gemini and Apollo generation. So are we going to go back to the moon? We will. It's all about timeline in the mid 1960s on the Kennedy effect. We put 4.4% of our annual budget went to NASA. Today, it's a third of 1%. And it's in, it, we, in order to really go back to the moon and the Mars, more money is going to need a, appropriated. However, today we have privatization of space. Jeff Bezos and Blue Origin and Elon Musk and SpaceX, many others. Uh, there'll be a collaboration between NASA in some of these new uh, private space companies. And I say we go back to the moon probably, um, some people are saying four or five years, I think maybe eight, nine years from now we'll go back. We will have the first woman moonwalker. There have been 12 men so far, no women. We will look at the polar caps, which has ice. And we will also explore some of the caves and tunnels on the moon. And mainly, the reason we're going to go is to use it as a stepping stone to Mars, as a, you know, you go moon to Mars. How many years that, away is that? Pardon? How many years away is that? Is I Mars? don't think we'll be on Mars until 2040. The Mars boosters will talk 2030 to you, but we're, it's a very hard to, to put humans on Mars and bring them back. But I believe by 2040, it'll happen. But, Doug, I think one of the implicit questions that your book raises is... Is the United States able to pull off a feat like this again? Do we have the imagination? Do we have the leadership? Do we have the national unity? I think I can answer that question. Uh, uh, to do the what today would be the equivalent of a moonshot. Maybe it's, it's solving climate change. But what's your view on that after having looked at uh, the Kennedy period and up through uh, Nixon when it happened and looking at... Uh, you know, our political culture today? Well, there are people that say the next moonshot should be a Mars shot. That includes Buzz Aldrin and Michael Collins, who are still alive. I find a lot of people say the new moonshot is an Earth shot. 
that we have to deal with our fragile planet Earth and the problems of climate change and drought and the like, and that we, it's time to heal our own planet. What we do know is there's no we, you know, really serious life form in this solar system, and we're kind of alone. With that said, um, I do think that we, we may be probably with Mars should partner with China or with Japan, with a group of, of countries like we're doing in the International Space Station. It could defray some of the budget. It would be good for the planet if, you know, four major countries are working on a project like that together. I don't think we need to go it alone like we were doing when we competed with Russia. And after all, today, Russian rockets take a lot of astronauts to the space station. And in 1975, under President Gerald Ford, uh, the U.S. and Russia docked together in, in space. So collaboration may be the key for future Mars exploration. I think going to the moon will be American done, though. I think we're going back there as USA, as a morale boost for the American spirit. But um, it's going to all depend on who's president. Uh, you know, I've written a lot about presidents, as you guys know, and one, they all get to pick one special project. I mean, Theodore Roosevelt, I wrote about, picked conservation. Jack Kennedy picked space. And, you know, a president's going to have to want to prioritize moon and Mars. It's easy to give speeches that we're going to go back to, you know, the moon and Mars, but the funding's another issue. And, and when did, we go back, the footprints of these those astronauts who landed there the first time will still be there. They'll all be on the moon, exactly. There's no wind. The only change, uh, someday that will be a national park site. Uh, space tourists will go, just like they go to the <laughs> Grand Canyon, to go look at where the Apollo 11 astronauts were. And um, the flag there, however, is probably, uh, we think, white. It got bleached out, ultraviolet rays, the red and the blues have have, um, faded. But beyond that, the exact site would be like it was. uh, The exact footprint wouldn't have moved uh, of Buzz Aldrin and Neil Armstrong. Well, when that happens and the uh, moon becomes a national park site. Uh, At the bookstore, at the park site, uh, the book American Moonshot by Doug Brinkley will be front and center on sale. Doug, thanks for joining us on this episode. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks to historian Douglas Brinkley for joining us on this episode of Buried Treasure. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell us what you think. Leave a review. Be sure to follow us on social media at Skullduggery Pod. We'll talk to you soon.